All right, guys. Well, hey, welcome to the last roundtable of this semester. Um, we're going to take a break for the summer, and then we'll launch back in in the fall. But if you're new to the roundtable, just a few quick things as we get started. This, um, this idea was kind of birthed out of the, the need that I saw for us to go a little deeper. Um, on Wednesday nights at Renovate, we're, we're really outreach-focused. Uh, we're sharing the gospel each week, and we're really considering non-believers in the audience week in and week out. And so one of the things we're doing here is we're trying to speak to the believers and going deep. This is not a sermon. Um, this is a, a lecture, a talk. And so if you have a question, raise your hand. If, you, um, you know, if you're confused about what I'm saying, don't, don't hesitate to raise your hand and say, hey, can you repeat that? So not a sermon. There, there can be dialogue and engagement. And uh, so I want this to be interactive. And with that being said, up on the screen, do we have it up there? Do we have the number? We're going to put this up on the screen. While I'm talking, if you have some questions, you can text them in to that number. And that way, um, that way we can kind of track what questions there are and, and make sure that we're not getting the same questions over and over. And so Kristen Hines over in the corner. What's up, Kristen? She's going to be, she's going to be on the computer and she's going to track the questions. And then, and then at the end, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll get after it. So... Um, yeah, so tonight we are talking about science and faith. And let me give you a few caveats. One of the things we're, we're not going to talk about is, um, or we're not going to debate, is the age of the earth. Um, this is not about uh, talking about evolution and creationism versus, uh, sorry Lonnie, you can put your magazines up. Uh, we probably won't need those tonight. Um, in fact, if you want to leave, you can. I, I won't take it personal. I know you've been uh, waiting for this moment all week. But here, here's the reason why. Um, what I want to talk about tonight is, as believers, how do we look at science and faith? Um, are they compatible? Are they in conflict? Um, do we need to be embarrassed about what we believe about science? Do we need to avoid conversations about science? Can you be a Christian biologist? Can you be a professor at a major university and teach biology or um, neuroscience or things like that? Or as a Christian who believes in the Bible, are we kind of taking ourselves out of the scientific discussion? So I want to give you guys tools to engage this conversation and to be confident in, uh, in talking with non-believers. So that's kind of where we're going tonight. Um, let me see here if I missed anything. Uh, yeah, so that's it. So I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to go through, just kind of briefly go through the handout so you know what that is, and then we'll jump in. So let's pray together. Well, Father God, I thank you um, uh, that we serve a God that is not silent. I thank you that creation um, speaks of you, and I thank you that creation is communicating your, your character and your attributes and Father, I thank you that uh, not only have you revealed yourself through creation, but you've given us your word. Um, you've spoken to us through your uh, scriptures and through your son Jesus, and we rejoice in that, especially with the realization that we've all been born into sin and we need a savior. And if you didn't speak to us and come down into this world, we would be hopeless. And so, Lord God, I pray that you would give us confidence when we... Um, deal with this subject of science. I pray that you would help us to see that this is a, uh, a discipline and a field that is to be celebrated and rejoiced in and pursued. 
Um, we don't have to be afraid of it. And so tonight, I pray that you would just bless our conversation, and uh, I pray that you would be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, real quick, the handout. There's just uh, three main points, and I, I like to just leave space for you guys to take notes and not just have a, a real detailed outline. Um, so if that disappoints you, I'm sorry, but I want you to to write down the things that you are interested in and don't worry about the other things. And so um, if you'll grab your handout real quick, I just wanna walk through this with you guys. Just a quick introduction, it's kind of defining terms, and then uh, three main points. We're gonna look at naturalism and science, and I'll explain these in a minute, and then Christianity and science, and then which one is most compatible with science, naturalism or um, Christianity, a theistic worldview. And so that's kind of where we're going, and you guys just, uh, this is for you, so jot down information, take notes, ask questions, Um, but this, like I said, is a classroom lecture environment, so I expect you guys to be taking notes, because if you don't, you won't remember any of this. So, um, so, So let's jump in. Okay, science and faith, friends or foes. Um, right off the bat, I, I kind of want to just go through a few uh, common perceptions from the atheistic world. Christopher Hitchens, who has passed away um, recently, is one of the four horsemen of atheism, is what he's called. Um, he says, all attempts to reconcile faith with science and reason are consigned to failure and ridicule. Another famous atheist, Victor Stinger, claimed that science and religion are fundamentally incompatible. And then Sam Harris says the conflict between religion and science is unavoidable. There is a large population of uh, atheists that believe that religion and science are incompatible. That if you profess to believe in a supernatural God and, and believe in, in miracles and things that are outside of this world, that that is incompatible with science. They cannot be reconciled. Um, and I, and I want to show you a clip real quick. This is, this is a perfect picture of the war between science and religion. So take a look. Hopefully it works. I'm a little concerned right now about your salvation and stuff. How come you have not been baptized? Because I never got around to it, okay? I don't know why you always have to be judging me. Because I only believe in science. But tonight, we are going up against Satan's caveman. And I just thought it would be a good idea if you... Yeah, we, we got a battle between science and religion, and uh, I love that movie. It's underrated, very underrated. Um, but, but seriously, there, there, is a, there is a conflict or seeming conflict with um, atheism and Christianity, and so let's, let's jump in. And anytime we start dealing with philosophical um, ideas and theology, it's really important to define the terms. So in your notes... Just a few quick definitions. Um, science, this, this, this word is misused all the time, but simply put, it's knowledge about or study of the natural world based on facts, learned through experiments and observation. 
hey, hey, brother, come on up and grab your hand out. Thanks, dude. Just, you need something back here? Or? Yeah, do you have any yeah. Nope, that's good. Go back, sit down. <laughs> Get out of here. Um, yeah, so, so science is just knowledge about the things of this world. It's, it's facts that are proved by experience, by observation. Uh, plain and simple, Christianity is the belief in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's the foundation of Christianity. We believe that God entered the world through Jesus Christ and, and he lived a perfect life and died for our sins. And, um, and then theism is the belief that there's a personal creator and sustainer of the universe who is omnipotent, omniscient, essentially good, omnipresent, and eternal. This is in your notes. So my question is, why would belief in Jesus prevent you from studying science? If science is just the observation of the things in the natural world, just, just learning facts about how the natural world works, why does belief in Jesus Christ and in a supernatural God prevent you from doing science? Why do those two things, why are they incompatible? Um, and so that's kind of what we're going to talk about tonight, but, but one of the big problems with atheism is how they define science, and we're going to get into that in a minute. Um, they define science as naturalism. And so if you read a, a book by Sam Harris or Richard Dawkins and you see the word science, they could be talking about science in the traditional definition like we just said, which is just studying the things of this world, observation and empirical evidence. And uh, they could also be talking about science in terms of philosophical naturalism. Um, so if you're taking notes, philosophical naturalism. Now, what in the world does that mean? Simply put, naturalism as an ideology means nothing exists outside of the material, natural order. And so here, here's how I would describe that or, or actually diagram that. So you've got the natural order and think of it as the box. If you all have read anything on this, you've probably heard that, but... Um, the natural order is everything inside of the box. So for a naturalist, what, what exists outside of the box? Nothing. Now, in a little while, we're going to see how the Christian worldview uh, definitely doesn't see it this way. But as you're thinking about naturalism as a philosophy, it's this idea that there is nothing real or true that exists outside of the box. And so the confusing thing is, we read books by uh, atheists and, and those who, who profess this philosophy, and they substitute science for this ideology. And so you, you don't know. Maybe they're talking about science, which is something we would agree with, just observing the facts of this world. Or maybe they're talking about science in terms of this philosophy, which is contrary to the biblical worldview. So I'll go ahead and put the biblical worldview picture here just so you can compare as we talk. So you have God and then you have the natural order. So does God exist inside of the natural order? No, God transcends the natural order. He's omniscient and omnipotent and omnipresent. He's everywhere, but in a sense, God is the creator of the natural order so he is outside of the natural order. And so as Christians, we believe that there's a whole world that exists outside of the natural order that we can't observe and see and test 
according to the way we've done that in science. You tracking with me? Once again, if you have questions, just raise your hand and, and we'll go through it. But my point in this is that this idea here, naturalism, is a religion. It, it is a philosophy that requires faith to believe in. And we're going to get into that in a moment. So um, C.S. Lewis, I'm going to quote a few times from him, of course. Um, but C.S. Lewis says, what the naturalist believes is that the ultimate fact, the thing you can't go behind, is a vast process in space and time which is going on of its own accord. No rhyme or reason. The world was existed out of nothing or was created out of nothing. It's purely material and physical, and it's ongoing with no rhyme or reason. There's no purpose behind it. It just happened by chance. That's this ideology of, of naturalism. Um, a really good book, and, and I'll mention some books a little later, but Ronald Nash wrote a book called Worldviews in Conflict. If you don't have it, you ought to grab it. So he gives six characteristics of a naturalistic worldview, and if, you have, if you're taking notes, go ahead and write these down. Um, once again, I'm just trying to, to, to explain what is this philosophy um, that so many scientists hold. Number one, only nature exists. Number two, nature depends on nothing else. There is no requirement for a God for nature to exist. Number three, nature is characterized by total uniformity. Nature is characterized by total uniformity. Number four, and this is a big one, nature is a deterministic system. For example, you look at a guy like Sam Harris, who's a neuroscientist, um, written a lot of books. He, he doesn't believe that we have free will. He, he really doesn't believe that there's anything behind the eyes besides biological you know, elements and chemicals firing in the brain. Uh, there is no free will. Everything is determined by, um, by nature and by the way your biology functions. Number five. Nature is a materialistic system. And number six, nature is a self-explanatory system. So everything that we can know about the natural world is self-explanatory. Um, we, can, we can see it by empirical evidence and data. So what... This is kind of a rhetorical question, but what's interesting about this list? Can you prove these things through scientific observation? Can you prove that, that nature is the only thing that exists? You, the, the, the funny thing about this worldview is it's self-contradictory. You can't prove any of those presuppositions that, that naturalists hold. Um, it requires you to go beyond scientific uh, observation, which means it's a philosophical system. So if you're taking notes, the, the, the new atheists, they're, they're, they're proposing a philosophical system, not just observations about the natural world. Final thing, and then we'll jump into the, the main points, which are in your notes. Um, science is the handmaiden, handmaiden of other philosophies. Science is the handmaiden of other philosophies. 
So science doesn't exist by itself. Science requires a scientist to interpret the data. And that scientist brings presuppositions and beliefs to the interpretation of data. You tracking with me? So pick any kind of scientific field. Um, If you're collecting data and you've got a hypothesis, there is a scientist that takes the data and that scientist is bringing beliefs and presuppositions and values to that process. There is no such thing as a scientist that is purely objective, that has no um, inherent, you know, that doesn't have any will to see the data say one thing or another. No one is purely objective. It's impossible. We all have beliefs that we bring to this scientific um, enterprise. Okay, so I want to look at two different uh, Worldviews, naturalism and science, and then Christianity and science. And then at the end, we're going to see which one kind of um, fits best with um, the idea of, of looking at data scientifically. So, naturalism and science. One of the biggest things you're going to see, and if you went to public schools, you probably saw this, but they've created a narrative that is not accurate to history. What naturalists have done is they've taken, uh, give me an example of some historical event that that's an atheist might use to say religion and science don't mix well. You can raise your hand or blurt it out. What's that? Okay, not that one. Uh, nobody knows what you're talking about. The Red Sea. Okay, Rob. Okay, and somebody said something over here. Galileo is kind of the one that pops into my mind. What, who's Galileo and what happened with him? Anybody know who Galileo is? He's an Italian. That's a good start. He's an Italian. Astronomer. Scientist. Some say he's the father of of modern science. Lonnie? Layman's terms, please, as you go. Yeah, so Galileo proposed the idea that the earth was not the center of the universe. Um, At the time, uh, scientists, philosophers, and church people thought that the earth was, was, uh, was stationed in the middle of the universe and everything rotated around the earth. Well, Galileo, um, proposed this idea that no, the earth was not the center of the universe, the sun was, and it became this huge controversy. And the way that they like to, to paint the picture is that the church tried to oppress and persecute Galileo. But that wasn't true. The church did not try to persecute Galileo because of these findings. What happened was he wrote a book and it was very provocative for scientists and church people. Anyone in that time period, it was revolutionary. It was an, an idea that no one really had ever, had ever seen. And so it was a provocative book, no doubt. But, but, but he, wasn't, he wasn't punished for writing that book. He was a Christian. He believed in the scriptures. He was involved in the church. He was friends with the Pope. Um, he was not this uh, purely naturalist who was the enemy of the church trying to undermine the church. That wasn't what happened. But the second book he wrote was this kind of fictional uh, story where he was playing a character who was the wise, rational one, and the Pope played an idiot. And for whatever reason, nobody really knows. He was friends with the Pope, but he made the Pope look like an idiot in this book. 
and he really embarrassed the Pope and some of the, the, the figures in the church at that time. And they were frustrated about that, not about his scientific discoveries. And so what did they do? They, they, they brought him in for a trial and they, they said that he was a heretic. And the, the worst that they did was they, they confined him to his home and he lived happily ever after. But it wasn't because of the scientific beliefs. It was because of his criticism of the church. But that is a common narrative that a lot of us grew up believing is that the church has always been opposed to science. It's just not true. This is really interesting. Um, uh, well, let's keep moving. We don't have a whole lot of time because we've got a lot of stuff here. Um, okay, so progressing on, you have in the, uh, in the 1600s this thing called the Enlightenment that came along. And with the Enlightenment, there was a, uh, an emphasis on reason and rationality. And um, one of the big things that happened because of the Enlightenment was a, a questioning of miracles and the supernatural, especially in the Bible. Um, Thomas Jefferson, who was a little later on, but, but he's a famous example of a rationalist. He took the New Testament and he cut out all the, the verses that, that showed supernatural events that happened in Jesus' life. So he took the Gospels and cut out everything that was supernatural and just left like the, the morality of Jesus, like love your enemies and, and uh, the golden rule. Um, that's kind of the rationalist mentality that the Enlightenment brought, brought with it. Um, but what's interesting, I, in, in Keller's book, The Reason for God, Tim Keller he critiques the idea that only modern people struggle with supernatural claims. So once again, the narrative that they try to create is that now that we're, we're, we've progressed as a people, now that we've progressed as a society, we've moved past the old superstitious religions that people used to believe. Now we're too smart to believe in those kind of things. But what Keller says is belief in the supernatural has always been a struggle. I mean, y'all have heard sermons about doubting Thomas. He had to literally see Jesus to believe that he really rose from the dead. In, on Mars Hill, Acts 17, Paul preaches to the, to the Greek philosophers. And the moment he started talking about the resurrection, a lot of them were like, that's crazy. There's no way that people would be resurrected. They, e even in that time period, belief in the supernatural was a difficult thing for people. It requires faith. But they want to create this narrative that that's a new thing. That because of technology and science and the things that we've discovered, we've moved beyond religion. That's a thing of the past. That's the narrative they've created. And then finally, which there's other things, but I love this story. It's a fascinating story if you haven't heard about it. But have you all heard of the Scopes Monkey Trial? 1925, um, there was a teacher who was teaching evolution. And it, it went, went to court. There were... There were um, they, were, uh, they took it to court because the, the people believed that um, the creationist account of, of the way we came to be, which is that God created everything about six to 10,000 years ago, um, should be taught in schools, not just evolution. became this huge deal. And there was this famous trial where Williams, William Jennings Bryan, who was a, um, ran for president several times, he was an intellectual, very famous figure in America, took the stand on behalf of Christianity and, and the, the young earth theory. And there was this uh, naturalist lawyer named Clarence Darrow who was, was um, cross-examining him. Fascinating thing that happened. So William Jennings Bryan, confident, uh, you, you know, great speaker, was, was on the stand. 
And Darrow, guess how many questions Darrow asked Brian about evolution, which was the point of the trial? Guess how many questions? Zero. He got into a debate about, uh, you really believe that Jonah was in the well for three days? And how can you say? And it started to become this, this back and forth on, on things that weren't even a part, a part of the case. And he backed Brian into a corner. And it, it really wasn't that lopsided. But the way the media took it, the media ran with it and said that, you know, Brian got crushed in the trial and Darrow was the, the victor. And because of that, this narrative in America has, has been going on even till today. That those who believe in a young earth and those who believe that God created everything are kind of the narrow-minded country bumpkins, as Darrow said, um, which that, that, that storyline is still existing today because of that event. And what's interesting is Brian, he died a week later. <laughs> he, I mean, it, it crushed him. I don't know if that's why he died, but he was, he was crushed by that. And, uh, and yeah, so that's kind of the tra- trajectory, that they're tra- the narrative they're trying to create. And so here's a few things that they um, just outright reject when it comes to the things we believe as Christians. The, the first thing is when they go to look at the scientific data, when they go to, to do you know, basic observation of things in this world, they come with anti-God presuppositions. So this camp, which includes Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris and Daniel Dennett and Christopher Hitchens, who's passed away, and many others... This group um, comes to the table of science already believing that there is no God and already bringing anti-Christian beliefs to the table. Number two, an outright denial of miracles. Obviously, if this is the only thing that's real that's in the box, then they can't believe in any kind of miraculous events that don't that don't fit into the natural order. Um, Tim Keller in his book, The Reason for God, says that scientific mistrust of the Bible began with the Enlightenment belief that miracles cannot be reconciled to a modern rational view of the world. Miracles cannot be reconciled to the modern world. This premise is behind the claim that science has proven that there is no such thing as miracles. So the premise behind that is that science has proven that there's no such miracles. But the problem, according to Keller, is that there is a major difference between saying that science always assumes natural causes and saying that science has proved that there can't be any other causes. Y'all track with me on that? There's a big difference between science or, or naturalists saying, we look at the natural world and natural causes alone. And because of that, we can't take into account supernatural things. There's a big difference between that and saying that they have proved that there's no such thing as supernatural things. That that there's no such thing as causes outside of the natural world. Keller says that's a major problem. You know why? Because you can't test that scientifically. How do you test that claim scientifically? You can't. It is a philosophical claim that there's no such thing as truth outside of the natural order. It can't be tested scientifically. He goes on to say that the premise behind the statement, miracles cannot happen, is that there can't be a God who does miracles. So to be sure that miracles cannot occur, you would have to be sure beyond a doubt that God didn't exist. And this is an article of faith, not science. 
the belief that God doesn't exist is, cannot be scientifically proven. It is an article of faith that people hold, just like we hold to the article of faith that God does exist. And I love this from Keller, and I've never, never heard it this way, but miracles are not the suspension of the natural order, but a glimpse into the coming restoration of the natural order. So when Jesus was on earth in the Gospels, when he was performing miracles, he was giving people a glimpse of the restoration that was to come. By healing people, he was showing that one day when I return, I'm going to bring healing to all people who believe in me. He was giving them a glimpse of the final restoration of, of this earth. What you got? Yeah, so... Um, so, yeah, miracles are not the suspension of the natural order, but a glimpse into the coming restoration of the natural order. So, it, honestly, it's my belief that, that science and naturalism are ultimately incompatible. Um, in order to do science, you have to believe in order and purpose in the way things are. Let me say that again. In order to really do science, you have to believe in order and purpose in the way things are. You have to believe that if you test things, they're going to happen a certain way every time. There's laws that exist in this world. It implies order. It implies structure. Naturalists placed a huge amount of trust in nature's order and their power of reason. So two big things. You got um, trust in order and trust in reason. And I'm going to show you why this is a major problem for them. Trust in order and trust in reason. Um, William Lane Craig, I don't know if you I'm throwing out a lot of names. Just jot them down and look them up. Um, part, part of like me saying this isn't a sermon, this is a lecture is, you know, if you're interested in this, go do your own research. If you hear names thrown out, jot them down and go research who these people are. Um, so when I quote people, I want to tell you who they are. William Lane Craig is a Christian apologist, philosopher, who has, you can go on YouTube and see a million different debates he's had with some of these, these guys in this top, top order. So William Lane Craig uses the principle of induction as an example of this problem with trusting in nature's order. Now, now follow with me here. What is the principle of induction? Here's what it implies. Induction means, here's the problem with it. Just because A has always been succeeded by B in the past provides no warrant for inferring that the next A will be followed by B again. So track with me. If naturalists believe that the world was created randomly by chance, there's no rhyme or reason, there's no purpose behind it, um, it's just material things that, you know, the perfect storm that created the universe. Okay, that's what naturalists believe. So if that's the case and it's utterly random with no why behind it, then how can you actually do science, which a lot of science is testing things. So um, we've seen that after A comes B this first time. We've seen again after A comes B. After A comes B, there begins to be an order to B following A. But who's to say, if you look at it from a naturalist worldview, that tomorrow B doesn't follow A? 
because, because there's, no, there's no rhyme or reason. Things could change in, in the way matter is, you know, working together that B, tomorrow doesn't follow A. So how do you actually, you know, look at and observe the things in this world and build hypotheses and arguments around uh, trying to find truth in the natural world if you can't even guarantee that things will work the same way as they always do? How can you believe in laws, C.S. Lewis says, if you don't believe in a lawgiver? How can you believe in the law of nature if there's not a lawgiver? Laws imply structure and purpose. And so the principle of induction really um, hurts the naturalist worldview. John Lennox, who's another guy you need to do research on. In fact, he spoke at TCU recently. Um, heavyweight Christian um, apologist says, Naturalists must admit that nature looks design. But they hold that such design is not real. So I've got a quote from Dawkins that he admits that there seems to be design in biology, but of course design can't be real because it doesn't fit into the box. Because if there's design, it implies a designer that's outside of the box. Questions at this point, are you tracking with me? So that, that's a big issue, guys. That's a huge issue. And the second one has to do with this trust in reason. Reason and understanding. If the mind has developed through blind, irrational, and material process of Darwinian evolution, then why should we trust it at all? If the mind is just this process that's unexplainable, that's just the product of Darwinian evolution, survival of fittest, and, and, and species evolving over time, then why should we trust it at all? Science cannot be used as an answer to this question because science itself relies upon these very assumptions. You can't test why we should trust in reason and understanding because you, science requires you to have reason and understanding to even do it. If Darwinian evolution is true, then we should distrust our faculties that make science even possible. C.S. Lewis says, if human reasoning is not trustworthy, then no scientific conclusions can be considered true or false. In fact, we couldn't have any knowledge about the world, period. He continues saying, if the value of reasoning is in doubt, you cannot try to establish it by reasoning. So you, you have to have order and reason to do science. And so what I'm proposing is these guys have to abandon their philosophy in order to actually do science. And they adopt a Christian philosophy in order to really do science. Because they value order and reason, and yet their philosophy undermines order and reason. So they have to pull it from somewhere else. And in doing that, they're being inconsistent and their philosophy is inconsistent. Sean McDowell says that, well, atheists can only do scientific research if they abandon their naturalistic worldview and borrow from theism because theism provides the necessary foundations for the logical, orderly nature of the universe and the powers of reason. Naturalism is self-refuting. They say that we should believe only propositions that can be scientifically proven. That itself is a proposition that can't be scientifically proven. To say you can only believe things that can be scientifically proven 
that statement can't be proven scientifically. It's self-refuting. Um, here's just a few more things, and then we'll jump into the Christianity and science. Um, you know, what's interesting is Richard Dawkins has this YouTube video. You can watch it. It's called The Virus of Faith. And, um, yeah, and, you know, he's supposedly one of the most intelligent men in the world and was on the cover of Time magazine years ago saying he was the smartest guy in the world. And I'm sure in his field, he's brilliant. But he believes that we as humans shouldn't even ask the why questions. You know those questions that even as a kid you you ask, those philosophical deep questions of why am I here, where did I come from, where am I going, what is my purpose? Richard Dawkins believes that those aren't even legitimate questions to ask. He doesn't even believe that why questions should be asked. So how do you explain the world that we live in, and, the, and, and how do you explain the fact that we long to have those questions answered? One, one guy says, uh, he's a scientist, he says, our universe is simply one of those things which happen from time to time. <laughs> That's a quote. You know, these kind of things just happen from time to time. Billions of, of planets and stars and, you know, universes, and it just, it just happens every once in a while. Keith Ward, another um, naturalist, points out how strange, or actually he's, he's refuting this. He says, how strange it is to think that there is a reason for everything except for that most important of all, that is the existence of everything, the universe itself. One atheist says, space-time generates its own dust in the process of its own self-assembly. He calls this the cosmic bootstrap the universe has just picked itself up by its own bootstraps and created itself. It assembled itself. This is, a, this is a legitimate scientist that's reputable in the scientific community. Another one, um, Paul Davies says, there's no need to invoke anything supernatural in the origins of the, in the, of the universe or of life. I have never liked the idea of divine tinkering. For me, it is much more inspiring to believe that a set of mathematical laws can be so clever as to bring all these things into being. There are so many problems with that statement, guys. The reason he believes that is because he kind of doesn't like thinking that there might be a God. He would prefer that, that the laws of mathematics created the world. So in conclusion, naturalism cannot account for the rational intelligibility of the universe. It's an article of faith. That's my point. So as you're talking with non-believers, as you're um, in classrooms, some of you, and as you're, you're listening to people talk about science, you have to realize the distinction between science as a, a thing that we all agree with. It's looking at the natural world and making observations and making hypotheses and finding truth that way. And the philosophy called naturalism. Two different things. One of them is compatible with Christianity. One of them is incompatible. To believe in naturalism is to have faith in this philosophy. It's not built on science. It's brought to the discipline of science. Okay, next, next major point. Christianity and science. So that's naturalism and science. Let's... Um, if you're following along in your notes, it's the next point, Christianity and science. So Christianity sees a much different picture of how science and, and uh, the faith have interacted. 
there's another great book. I'm throwing them out there. The End of Secularism. Hunter Baker, um, Christian philosopher, says, True science developed in Christian Europe and nowhere else, yet we are to believe that faith prevented its flourishing? So his argument, along with many others, is that this worldview actually helped spur on and create and motivate people to discover all the things going on in the box. So it was the theistic worldview that actually inspired people to find out the beauty and the the order of God's creation. And if you look back through history and and you look at at reputable sources, what you'll see is, is that the Christian West is where scientific discovery and and curiosity developed. Sean McDowell says, Christianity has provided the philosophical foundation as well as the spiritual and practical motivation for doing science. The Christian worldview, with its insistence on the orderliness of the universe, its emphasis on human reason, and its teaching that God is glorified as we seek to understand his creation, laid the foundation for the modern scientific revolution. That's a big statement, guys. That's not what most of us grow up being taught in public schools. That Christianity is the foundation of scientific discovery. Any questions at this point? This is a lot of information. Um, Any questions at this point? Okay, well, let's keep, keep rolling then. And then we'll, um, just a reminder, if y'all want to text in things, you can text it into the number, and I'll try to address that at the end. But uh, let's keep rolling through this. Okay, w- this is a big point. So within the Christian world, within the theistic understanding of the universe, there's kind of two extremes One of the extremes is this idea that we're in conflict with science, and science is the bad guy, Uh, science is evil. Um, Anytime somebody talks about science, you know, we've, it's it's kind of this protect our little subculture from from the the bad scientists, the biologists, and the physicists. That's the, the conflict position in the Christian world. On the other side, it's this completely harmonious position. That argument is there's no really distinction between science and religion. They're perfectly compatible. And what happens oftentimes is you begin to compromise biblical truth if you see science and religion perfectly compatible. So the position I take um, is kind of the the both and, as I do with many other things. It's somewhere in between those extremes. Um, Augustine, who was a famous uh, church pastor, theologian back in the 5th century, Um, He said, he he used this term, plundering the Egyptians. And he talked about how the Israelites, when they left, uh, were delivered from Egypt. They they took a lot of the things from the Egyptians, the nice things, and then they left all the rest. Well, Augustine says we do that with science and and, and philosophy and all these other fields. We take what what fits biblical truth and we leave the rest behind. So that's kind of my position with science. Um, with the things that we see in neuroscience and the things we see in psychiatry and and, and biology and and all of those areas is I take what's compatible with Scripture and I leave the bones. You tracking with me on that? 
um, I feel like that's the best way to not fall into one of those two um, extremes. So there was an interesting study done, and, and this is kind of in support of this bottom one. Um, a big argument of the, the uh, naturalist worldview is that scientists today, by and large, don't believe in, in God or any kind of supernatural. But what's interesting is a group of scientists did a study in 1916 where they, they uh, surveyed uh, a ton of science, uh, scientists in, in America and in Europe and they asked the question, do you believe in a, God, in a personal God who communicates and can be communicated to through prayer? Yes or no? These are scientific community. What percentage in 1916 do you think said yes? What did you say? 25? I just said a pretty high percentage. 40%. 40%. But 20% were undecided. And then 40% were like, no, I don't believe in that. So we're talking about close to half of the scientists in 1916 um, either actually more than half either believed in the, the God of the Bible or believed that there was a possibility of some creator out there. Fast forward to 1997. You know, we're, we're well into the modern world. Um, what percentage, they did the same survey. What percentage of scientists do you think believed in a personal God? 1997. Okay, Brian says roughly the same. Any other thoughts? Do you think it went down or went up? Down? It's actually about exactly the same as 1916, 1917. Now, to me, that, that, is, that is compelling evidence that this narrative that we've all heard and we've all embraced, and if I did a poll in here, you would all probably say, of course, There'd be less scientists today that believe in a supernatural God than back in 1916. But the reality is, it's about the same percentage. The narrative that they're trying to create is not true. You can be a legit, top-notch scientist and be a Christian. There is no contradiction between the two. Um, a great example of this is a guy named Francis Collins. And whether you agree with his understanding of cre the creation account or not, he is a professed Christian who was the head of the, uh, the Genome Project, which developed uh, you know, the understanding of the DNA strand. He wrote a book called The Language of God, if you want to read more about, um, about that. But, but he is a, a credible, credible scientist who believes in the God of the Bible. And then a former Nobel Prize winning physicist, Bill Phillips, is another guy who um, is a legitimate scientist. There's, there's numerous scientists who believe in God. Uh, John Lennox contends that the gulf between atheistic scientists and theistic scientists has little to do with the conflict between science and religion, but everything to do with worldviews. So guys, just hear me once again. I'm going to keep going back to this. The, the problem is not science. The problem is your philosophy, what do you believe? What presuppositions are you bringing to the scientific field? The issue is not science and, and faith. The issue is philosophy and worldview. Huge difference. Um, okay, so finally, final point. Which one is science most compatible with? And then we'll, we'll 
get to the questions. Of course, my argument is that the most compatible, I, I believe that the biblical account of God, of the supernatural, of human beings, of where we came from, of where we're going, of salvation, is true. Therefore, I believe it is most compatible with science. I don't have to be afraid of science because I believe there is nothing in science that will disprove what I believe about who God is and who we are. So I can happily study and go all in in the scientific, uh, you know, in, in, in my scientific pursuits and not be afraid that one day they might discover something that, that undermines my worldview because I believe my worldview is true and I believe their worldview is false. And as Christians, we can't be afraid to make those kind of proclamations. Okay, so I want to give you three reasons, if you're taking notes, three reasons, and then we're going to wrap it up. This is from a, uh, a chapter in a book, Beyond Opinion. John Lennox it was the author of that chapter. I'm, I'm ad- adapting his three arguments here. Number one is the evidence from the history of science. So three reasons I believe that the theistic worldview is most compatible with science. Number one, evidence from the history of science. Um, A guy named Melvin Calvin, who was a Nobel Prize winner in biochemistry, believes that the conviction that the universe is orderly is germinal to science, meaning foundational. So this Nobel Prize winning biochemist believes that in order to really do science, you have to believe that there is some kind of order to the universe. And here's what he says. As I try to discern the origin of that conviction, like he's trying to figure out where did that conviction come from that he holds, I seem to find it in a basic notion discovered 2,000 to 3,000 years ago and enunciated first in the Western world by the ancient Hebrews. Namely, that the universe is governed by a single God and is not the product of the whims of many gods, each governing his own province according to his own laws. Kind of contrary to Greek mythology and the idea of a a plurality of gods. This monotheistic view seems to be the historical foundation for modern science. That's huge. He believes that the, the Hebrew understanding of the one true God is the best argument for why we have developed this idea of modern science. It's birthed out of that idea of a creator and an order in the universe. How do we explain the explosion of scientific knowledge in the 18th century? Why did that happen? Another scholar, uh, Alfred Whitehead, believes it is because of the medieval insistence on the rationality of God. So he argues that the reason we've seen such an explosion of of scientific discovery in the 18th century in America and in England by Christians, by Christians, a large majority of theistic believers is because of the the old, old conception of a rational God. That's what motivated these guys to to enjoy discovering the beauties of this world that's inside the box. Not trying to disprove God, but trying to glorify God. Because they believed in a God, they believed that there was order in the universe. Because they believed that there was order in the universe, they could do science, which is observe patterns and make make arguments based on those patterns. Number two, 
So number one, evidence from the history of science. Number two, evidence from the philosophy and methodology of science. Evidence from the philosophy and methodology of science. So, as I said before, the Enlightenment ideal of the perfectly objective scientist is a myth. Everyone brings their own presuppositions and worldviews to the task of science. It's a fact. Therefore, um, science has limits. Uh, Science can't tell us everything. Science just tells us what's going on in the box. It can't tell us many, many other things. It's not meant to explain everything. Um, Unfortunately, guys like Richard Dawkins believe that science can tell us everything that we can know, which is why he has to say that the why questions are not important because he has no answer for the why questions because science can't answer the why. Science can just tell us the what and the how. It has limits. It's interesting, Bertrand Russell, famous atheist, he wrote a book called Why I'm Not a Christian. Um, He's no longer with us. Um, He says, whatever knowledge is attainable must be attained by scientific methods. And what science cannot discover, mankind cannot know. How can he support that statement scientifically? It's impossible to support that presupposition scientifically which means he knows something that can't be proved scientifically, which undermines that very statement. That statement is not a statement of science. It's a philosophical statement. The idea that science is the only way to discover truth is not a scientific answer. It's a philosophical answer. It's a philosophical statement. Um, Science cannot answer the the why questions in life. Think think about this. I was going to bring it, and I forgot it. It's in my office. But my, daughter, my two daughters are in the back of the room, my wife. Um, in fact, they're playing with a bunch of pictures and things. They probably made them in, in, uh, in Sunday school tonight. And what my daughters do often is when they get done with Sunday school, they bring me what they've made in, in the classroom. Um, you know, it's hard to decipher <laughs> what it is exactly, what their portraits are. They never really look like me. But, you know, scientifically... I can, I can take that piece of paper with, you know, cotton swabs glued on it and these weird designs and scratch. I, I can scientifically look at all of the elements of what the paper's made of and what the crayons are made of, made of and what color the crayons are and what's the material. I can scientifically, scientifically look at that. But can science explain why my daughter got excited about giving me that piece of paper and what the meaning of that is? Science cannot explain the purpose behind that gibberish on that sheet of paper. How can we know what the meaning of that piece of paper is with the cotton swabs and the scribbling? How can we know? Somebody tell me. I ask her. And so she has to reveal to me the meaning of what's on that piece of paper, right? I can't discover it by science. There's no amount of scientific data I can do with that sheet of paper to to disclose the meaning that my daughter had with giving me that and what's behind it. Science can't tell you what's behind the meaning of the things in this world. And so my daughter has to reveal it to me. 
And so we as Christians believe that we can discover a lot about the how and the what of this world. But if God doesn't reveal the meaning behind it and the purpose behind it, we can't know it. And so we believe that the ultimate why questions are answered because God revealed them through his word. Through Jesus Christ, the living word, and through the Bible, the written word. That's how we know the meaning behind what's in the box. Science can't tell us why we exist or where we're going or what our purpose is in life. And it's, it seems to me to be common sense, and I always go back to Romans chapter 1 where Paul says that, that you know, bright minds suppress the truth because their hearts don't want to believe in God. And so they build their own gods. They build their own images. They start to worship creation instead of the creator. And if you, if you read Richard Dawkins' books or Sam Harris's books or watch the videos on YouTube, you realize that they are worshiping at the feet of science. Their hope and faith is in science. And Paul says that's because no matter how brilliant they are, because their hearts hate God, they suppress the truth. And so we as Christians, when we're talking to these people, we've got to remember that they are human beings who have sinful natures. And instead of just trying to win the argument or going straight to evolution and get into this debate, we've got to realize that their hearts need to be transformed so that they stop suppressing the truth and start to see that there's a big world, a much bigger world than what they see in the box. So number three, and then we're done. So number one, evidence from the history of science. Number two, evidence from the philosophy and methodology of science. Number three, evidence from the discoveries of science. So what I mean by that is just you look at, you know, look at the human eye. Read an article on the human eye and, and let it amaze you. The sophistication of the human eye. Look at the, the fine-tuning of the universe and how everything needs to be exactly the way it is for human life to exist. Look at the things in this world and the evidence will point to an intelligent design, will point to a creator. Another Nobel Prize winner, Arno Penzias, believes that the best data we have are exactly what I would have predicted had I nothing to go on but the five books of Moses, the Psalms, and the Bible as a whole. Once again, this is a Nobel Prize winner, guys. This is not a, a country bumpkin. This is a sophisticated intellect who says that the data shows that the Old Testament view of reality is right. The universe is perfectly tuned for human life and existence. Again, Arno... Penzias says it well. Astronomy leads us to a unique event, a universe which was created out of nothing, one with a very delicate balance needed to provide exactly the right conditions required to permit life, and one which has an underlying plan. Biology, you look at biology. Even Richard Dawkins, listen to this, even Richard Dawkins sees design and purpose in biology. He says this, the study, he defines biology this way. He says, biology is the study of complicated things which give the impression of having been designed for a purpose. 
So because of his presuppositions, because of his worldview, he can't admit that the evidence shows divine design. He just says it gives impressions. But isn't that what science is? It's looking at patterns and things that give off impressions that this must be the way things are. They keep, you know, over and over and over, and and then you make hypotheses on that. He won't admit that biology points to a sophisticated designer. And then, of course, the DNA argument, which I'm not going to jump into now, but uh, you can read the language of God, Francis Collins, and look at that. So in conclusion, the issue is not science and Christianity. Okay? Hear me say that. The issue is not science and Christianity. The issue is the philosophy called naturalism and the philosophy called theism. Guys, this should give us great confidence when it comes to science. We don't have to know all the the details of the science world to realize that ultimately we're talking about philosophical arguments. And so my advice to you guys, when you're in a conversation with somebody and you get into the, you know, I enjoy these conversations, but when you get into it, I would advise you, don't start getting into a contest with the details unless you're an expert in some particular field. But I can tell you, from my perspective, if I was talking with someone who believed this way, I wouldn't start arguing over the age of the earth. I would want to quickly get to philosophical ideas about, you know, what are the presuppositions that they're bringing to the table, and then what I'm going to do is try to help them realize that they're doing that, because a lot of them don't. So I would, I would start having a conversation in terms of philosophy, not in trying to see how much knowledge I know when it comes to science. Now, you might get to that point, but, but to me, that's the direction to go as you're sharing your faith and, and trying to argue for a theistic worldview. Um, once again, the argument, guys, is not about evolution. It's about repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. That's ultimately what we're trying to do. We're trying to share the gospel with somebody, not trying to win an argument. So let's not get into the details and get into the side conversations. Let's focus on the fact that their hearts are far from God. And let's, let's, let's deal with the, the worldview issues and hopefully share the gospel and see them come to faith in Jesus Christ. Lonnie. Before I jump in, I'd like, does anybody want to respond to that? Brother, sister fight. Keep going. This is good. Ben's got a thought. Ben's one of our pastors here at Christ Chapel. Um, I think he's about to, you, you counseling session or you jump? By, by the way, before Ben talks, listen guys, I, I remember several roundtables ago, we had some heated 
you know, back and forth. I think it actually was me and Adam Herb, yeah, which I thought it was delightful. It was fun. We're buddies. We do podcasts together. But I talked to three or four of you afterwards, and you were terrified that a pastor would get into a disagreement and that somebody would disagree with their pastor. And, and so I just want you to know, guys, that, that disagreement is okay. You know, because we're Christians, it doesn't mean we have to agree on everything, okay? So go ahead, Ben. <laughs> no, I, I just, uh, I think I, I think I like the idea. I'm not saying this is where I stand, but I don't know who threw out their logic that if you, to reject evolution is the only way to be able to read properly Genesis. And, and I think there is a most scientific way, most scientific way. And I think the, the counter argument to that would be, is Genesis 1 and 2 written to be scientific or is it written to point to God? And I think the argument would be from some that Genesis Okay, so this is a great point, real quick. So um, a lot of times the debate has to do with our interpretation of Scripture. We're not debating the validity of Scripture. Think back to Galileo. He believed in Scriptures. The, the people who thought he was a heretic believed in the Scriptures. It was a different interpretation. And come to find out, Galileo had the right interpretation, so the church has changed their interpretation over time. And so what they're talking about, which is very important, is how do you understand Genesis 1 through 11? And within the Christian intramural world, there's different arguments on how to interpret Genesis 1 through 11. And we're seeing that come out right now. Did you want to finish your thought on that? So my, 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 advice, my advice is that this is an intramural argument, what's going on here. So if, if you meet someone who's not a Christian, my, my opinion, and this goes back to your original statement, is that if you go down this road, get ready for a couple hours of just back and forth, and nobody changes their positions. I would rather put that aside and focus on the big why, you know, the, the presuppositions that they hold, the, the big why questions that they're denying or how do they answer those. And when you get into the world of philosophy, now we have a leg to stand on. As Christians, we have more authority, we have more tools in our belt than trying to you know, discuss things that honestly most of us don't fully understand unless we've been trained in that, in that uh, area or unless you're Lonnie who 
that's definitely his passion for real. Lonnie loves this stuff and, and eats it up. Um, yeah, so um, any other thoughts on that? Adam. I don't think so. I mean, and, and like Ben said, I don't think it's the purpose is for it to be a comprehensive uh, explanation of all the things in this world. Like the, the, the natural world, there are a lot of things we discover as true in the natural world that the Bible doesn't talk about. Like the law of gravity. It's, it's a truth that we believe or else we would jump off buildings and die. I mean, we all respect that as truth. But the Bible doesn't talk about that. Yeah, you first. Um, just teasing. Any, any other comments on that before we jump into some questions? I'd like to know what a safe zone to work within. Safe zone to work within? Yeah. Uh, I, think, I think my point is, you know, Lonnie brought the idea that, like, well, if you don't interpret it this way, then, then you're going to be out of bounds and respect that. And I think, oh, uh, I think, or at least that's kind of how I interpret it. I think it's kind of, if, if we have a dogmatic approach to say, well, this is, this is what it is, Resurrection? Did Jesus really resurrect, or is that metaphorical? Okay, well, that's a big one, right? 
that's a good good summary. But let's let's see, Kristen, do we have questions? Let's go ahead and jump into that so we keep keep it rolling. Sure, we have way more questions than we're gonna get to. That's my um, bad, guys. So we'll figure that out. Much. If y'all, if your question doesn't like, if we don't get to it, um, contact one of us and we can talk about it, or maybe we can use the blog or something to yeah. get to some of them. But anyways, okay, for the first question, let's... Don't drop my new computer, by the way. I will do I my best. Um, okay, first one let's get to is, isn't the Hebrews 11.1 1 definition of faith incompatible with the definition of science on the handout? Is it or isn't it? Okay, so... Say that again. <laughs> um, is the Hebrews 11.1 1 definition of faith incompatible with the definition of science on the handout? No, I mean, I, no, because we're, we're talking about two different worlds here. We're talking about the natural order, which is the world that science deals with. And what Hebrews 11.1 1 is, is dealing with is the things that are outside of the box, the, the spiritual realities that, you know, belief in God and belief in, in salvation, which are things that you can't tangibly see and feel and touch. So I would say they're, they're two, different, two different worlds. So I don't think they contradict. Okay, great. Um, okay, this next one, I think we were starting to touch on in the dialogue here. But um, can you be a Christian and believe in evolution as well? Well, it depends on how you define evolution. <laughs> um, well, let me ask you this, guys, and I want to hear your feedback. Can someone... Um, I mean, I'm, I'm about to just repeat the question. Um, <laughs> I'm just thinking in terms of like the initial, you're sharing the gospel with somebody, and they can't... Can you share the gospel with somebody, and they come to faith, genuine, genuine conversion, and yet they believe in evolution? What if they continue to believe in evolution? That a point force. Um, Safe <laughs> Go ahead. Yeah. Okay. You can definitely be a Christian and believe in evolution. Don't hit him, Lonnie. Put the, put the phone down. I know, I'm, t I'm teasing with you. I'm just joking. It is an extremely dangerous place to be. And there, I drew this line. What happens is we have Christians, and typically we start out or raise Christians. And then you have evolution. So you can, but it's dangerous. 
Hey, be, be nice. Go ahead, Nathan. Perseverance is the same thing as knowledge of the gospel. Perseverance is the knowledge of the gospel of God's grace. Is my being justified by Christ dependent upon my complete understanding of the gospel without contradiction, without impunity, or is it dependent upon Christ? Can I ask a counter question? Yeah. Ooh, counter questions. I didn't sign up for that. No. But what he, but what Nathan's, what Nathan's saying is that you don't have to know everything about the gospel to be saved, and and so if you don't have to know everything about the gospel to be saved, you don't have to know everything about how Christ is the second Adam, and you know you, you can you can deny truths in the Bible, either uh, you know subconsciously not knowing it or just a lack of knowledge, ignorance, and still genuinely be a Christian. Um, one of my biggest reasons that I believe that is when you look back through history, you know, one of the guys, this is one of the most authoritative books on the inerrancy of Scripture. Um, his, he was a professor at Princeton. His name was B.B. Warfield. And he wrote a book on the authority and inerrancy of, of the Bible. It's, it's still one of the best ones. This was in the um, 19th century. Um, he believed in... Um, he believed in evolutionary, uh, theistic evolution. I don't believe in that. Um, I think he's wrong on that. I think he was accommodating the cultural moorings of the day and, and was trying to find a, a good answer to the Darwinian you know, uh, argument that just came on the scene. So I think he was wrong. But he still was genuinely a phenomenal theologian who was wrong in that area. And I would argue that you can pick any theologian, pick your favorite theologian, and there's going to be serious blind spots in their theology and their understanding. And you can't hold people to their blind spots. Like, you just can't do that. People are going to look back at my life and see that I had blind spots in my thinking and my theology. And so that's, that's my answer to that question. A very long, appreciate the feedback. But I think ultimately, yes, you can be a Christian and, and still have a, you know, uh, a less than ideal view of, evolution and how we came to be next question we got a few more minutes okay um this one's specific to one of your talking points so regarding science being handmaiden of other philosophies um can you provide an example of the same scientific data being interpreted in different ways based upon the observer's presuppositions gosh thanks a lot pal who's that <laughs> of course patrick um <laughs> Oh, let me see. Yeah, yeah sure. Time. Um, Thanks for the stall tactic. Thanks, Ben. Can You're you a pro, brother. Can you provide an example of the same scientific data being interpreted in different ways based upon the observer's presuppositions? <laughs> we got a couple options. 
I'll take some more time. Lonnie. <laughs> That's good. That's a real good example. I, I would also say um, when, when you look at the uh, neuroscience, looking at addictions and um, looking at, um, you know, whether it's depression or anxiety or addictions, I would argue that our presuppositions that we bring to interpreting the data that they've discovered about how the brain works and, you know, Christians would go further than just the physical, the material. So we both have the same data. Uh, a naturalist is going to stop at the biological. The Christian is going to take the biological data, but there's going to be more to it. There's going to be a spiritual element. There's going to be a distinction between the brain and the mind. There's going to be, um, you're gonna, we're going to take into account free will, which a purely naturalist neuroscientist can't take into account free will. Yeah, I mean, on a, here, here's one on a, and then we'll, we'll do two more questions after this. Hold on. Um, here's, here's an easy one. Empirical data. Empirical data. You see a guy walk into a convenience store and kill the person behind the counter. Okay, there's, you're trying to figure out what just happened. Why did the guy do that? He represented. <laughs> oh, my God. Hey, guys, let's, let's pray. This thing's over. Bye. <laughs> Man, you're awesome, Adam. Okay, so, so would you agree that we're both, you know, the, there's two people in the convenience store when that happened. You've got a, a naturalist and a theistic uh, Christian. Would you agree that they have the same data that they're working with? So a naturalist is, is, not, is, is going to explain those actions in a purely physical, material, biological way, which means that that person's actions were determined by certain biological things that were happening. He's not morally culpable for that action. And you might think that's ridiculous, but read Sam Harris. He, he denies free will. Our, our actions are determined by the biological chemicals going on in our brain. So they would interpret that empirical data as, man, it, it was just... You know, the, it was a misfire in his biological synapses where I would, I would see much more than that. There could be some biological elements to it, but um, so I wouldn't interpret the data differently. I would just, or I wouldn't, I wouldn't see the data differently. I would just interpret it a little differently.
And I would say that whatever they discover in that pursuit would not be contradictory to holding a Christian worldview. Like whatever facts they discover would not contradict a Christian worldview. It's the moment that they start philosophizing about how that happened or why that happened that they do that. Sorry, guys. We've got to do one or two more just so we can get through it. Um, Okay. As many as we can. Can you unpack the problem with determinism and purpose when it comes to people's lives versus the Christian worldview, i.e. the gospel? Good questions. Um, Yeah. Can I unpack the difference? The problem. The problem. With determinism and purpose when it comes to people's lives versus the Christian worldview. Okay, so the first part is there's a problem in the idea that we're biologically determined to behave and act in certain ways. And that the world that we live in is, has no room for freedom of choice, um, has no room for the human uh, affections and will. That's, that's a problem in my mind, and that's a problem with the biblical worldview. The second part, the gospel, um, yeah, ultimately the gospel there is a part that we play. There is a hearing of the gospel and then a responding to the message and repentance and faith that if we're purely determined, uh, we don't have that ability. We don't have that capability. So I think that undermines the gospel. And post-conversion, living a life of freedom to pursue the things that we want to pursue, if, if we've been living in addiction, after conversion, we have to believe as Christians that we can overcome those addictions, that we're not slaves to our biological makeup. Um, Tim? Uh, I agree completely. I think the major aspect of the difference being, you know, the naturalistic worldview would say that we are who we are because of how we were raised, you know, brain composition, chemistry. Um, and so we're not responsible for our actions. If you look at it from a Christian or gospel point of worldview, we're all sinners, we're all fallen, uh, we're still responsible for our actions. And that explains a lot of the wrong decisions, the bad choices. That's such a great point. I mean, we see it all the time in big, high-profile court cases. What do they normally try to plead, the defense lawyers? Okay. Um, by what means? If, it, if it's like a ma- insanity. And, and that argument is that the person is not responsible for their actions. Um, you know, and so that, that logic has been expanded in, in a way that I think is dangerous, that people are not being held accountable for their actions. Last one. Um, okay. If naturalists don't believe in anything outside of the box, um, then what would be their argument for paranormal activity? Um, would they just completely reject the existence of such events? And would that, then would that point to the existence of a supernatural realm unseen to us? What would they say about any of that? They would totally say it doesn't exist. That it's just an illusion or, my, you know...
solar system that there is probably another earth just like this. And so they, a lot of atheists believe in aliens because they believe that there's life on other planets. That's why we try to go to Mars and place on water. As far as the supernatural side of it, they, they probably believe in supernatural. That's a good point. Sure. Um, I would imagine, and I'm pretty sure I've heard statements to this effect, that on the other side, you know, naturalistic, atheistic, whatever standpoint, it couldn't be a similar, well, I don't know how that weird supernatural thing happened, but because of my faith in a lack of supernatural, I'm sure there was scientific explanations for it. That's a, that's a great point. Yeah, and that goes back to the idea that we, we have presuppositions that help us interpret the data. And, and there are times where we don't know. I mean, we just say, I, I don't know how to answer that. And we shouldn't be afraid of saying that. I mean, um, we can't expect to know everything. And so don't be afraid to say, I don't know, um, when you're in a conversation with somebody. Okay, um, I want to show you just a few books if you're interested and you can jot them down and take a look at them. But anything John Lennox you want to grab. But this one's God and Stephen Hawking. Whose design is it anyway? Stephen Hawking is a... Have you all seen the movie Theory of Everything? That's Stephen Hawking. Um, the Dawkins Delusion, Alistair McGrath, another good one. Uh, I like short books. You can knock it out quickly. Um, this is one I just got. I haven't read it yet. Um, how, to be, how to Be an Atheist. Why Many Skeptics Aren't Skeptical Enough. Uh, Mitch Stokes. Um, just a couple more. Stealing from God. This is a really good book. Frank Turek, he also wrote a book called I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. You might want to check that one out. And uh, anything Ravi Zacharias. I don't know if you've heard of Ravi Zacharias, but man, he's had a huge impact on my life. This is a collection of essays called Beyond Opinion. Really good book. And then finally, my favorite, hands down, my favorite book. Unfortunately, it's a, it's a thick book, but it's, it's really an interesting read. Um, it's one of those that once you start getting into it, you can't put it down. Her name is Nancy Piercy, and she um, was, was influenced by Francis Schaeffer, who was a famous 20th century apologist. Um, and this is called Total Truth. Excellent book, Liberating Christianity from His Cultural Captivity. Really good, um, really good. And I'd like to close with uh, physicist James Clerk Maxwell um, wrote over the, uh, the doors of the, the famous physics laboratory in Cambridge, which used to be a Christian university. So this was written over the, uh, the physics laboratory in Cambridge. Psalm 111.2. Greater the works of the Lord, they are pondered by all who delight in Him. Greater the works of the Lord, they are pondered by all who delight in them. Um, so that's, 
that's my uh, hope for you guys, that you will look at the things in this world and rejoice in the creator behind these beautiful things and, and let, them, um, let them cause you to glorify God, uh, whether it's a sunset or a mountain range or, you know, a nice meal at a restaurant. Let these beautiful things in this world bring you to worship of God. So let's pray together. Father God, I thank you. Um, I thank you that we can be confident in our faith. I thank you that we can celebrate the joys of scientific discovery and not be afraid of them. And Lord, I thank you for these men and women who um, at least care enough uh, about this subject to to come here and, and listen to me speak. And um, you know, we just scratched the surface and there's so many people out there that you have gifted in, in such a greater capacity, Lord, that I would ask that you would just put it on their hearts to continue to pursue um, greater understanding of who you are and who we are um, as humans created in your image and, and how you've orchestrated this world and how you brought redemption to this world. And so just help us to pursue those things. In Jesus' name, amen.